Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick while giving my commentary and analysis of it. In today's episode, I'll be looking at a story published in 1959 called Fair Game. Now, this story was published, was originally written in 1953 and submitted to his agent then. It's one of a handful of stories along with Noel Ohl that, although written very early in his career, did not see the light of day until until 1959 and as i've talked about in other episodes and other story episodes from this period of time dick had pretty much put an end to his writing of short stories at least temporarily he wrote a couple i think in 1958 and they came out in 1959 but pretty much he had wrote most of his stories in the in the mid-1950s and then you know it some later ones got published he would pick up short story writing again in the mid-1960s with a whole uh, a bunch of really great stories. Some of his most well-known were published in the mid-60s, but that was after he kind of set, a, set down his short story writing pen for a while and focused on novels. So Fair Game is just one of these stories that it was kind of like old business that, that finally got published. So it, it doesn't really fit thematically into a lot of what Dick was doing. In fact, it really does feel like a, one of the earlier stories. It's it's very playful. It's got a lot of fantasy elements. It's it's less science fiction. It it just feels like the, some of the earliest stories he wrote um, in that way. Although it does have some serious moments in it, it, it sort of deals with the surveillance state in, in interesting ways. So I would say that's what this, this story is about, essentially is surveillance or the idea of a cosmic entity or cosmic being looking down on us and, and controlling us. Although here it is presented more as a joke. So Fair Game, originally published in IF in September of 1959, which is actually where Recall Mechanism was published as well. So Dick was getting a couple of his stories uh, sold uh, to IF around this time. You can find it in, it actually opens up the third volume of the Collected Stories, second variety of the classic stories by Philip Dick. It's the first one there. So while published quite late in his short story career, it has, it feels much like his earlier short stories. In fact, it was. It was written in 1953. So let's just jump into the plot of the story if you haven't read it or if you haven't forgotten it. So our main character here is a man named Professor Anthony Douglas. And he's got this new project, which will keep him busy in his university work. So we have a kind of another aloof husband, if, if you're keeping track of all, all of them that, that Dick wrote about. The career is much more important than his family. Now, but he's got he's very fearful, though. He's got an anxiety, and this is what's driving him to focus on his university work. And that is that this new that a new generation of scientists will move up the ranks, displace old timers like himself. And so he's, he's like, he's just the academic who's afraid of the young whippersnappers with their new fresh ideas coming and taking their positions. I don't know. I suppose he's got tenure, though, so I don't know what he's worried about. If anything, the problems goes the other way, I think, in, in academia. I, I, I'm a big supporter of tenure, but on the other hand, I, I think in the way the job market's structured right now in academia, it's so hard for younger scholars to get into the field. And so many brilliant young scholars are basically 
forced out of academic jobs because of the job market in a lot of fields. And there has to be some kind of compromise made between tenure and older faculty and, and the needs of younger faculty, I think, especially because it's older faculty who basically make a career out of training the next generation of, of professionals in their field. But anyways, that's beside the point. Right away, Dick gets to uh, what's going on here in, in the main theme. Douglas looks out the window and he sees a giant eye looking down into his room. So Douglas goes to work. He's, he's still stable enough to go to work after this. He, he goes to talk to his colleague and man named Professor William Henderson. And he tells him what he saw. And Douglas says that he was being studied. Jim Henderson, a lecturer, suspect, also hears about this and suspects that it was some kind of ad campaign. Like maybe it was just an advertisement. Like, And that's plausible, I suppose, especially in a science fiction environment that people would have the means of kind of displaying ads into this into space or onto the sky. But they do also consider the possibility that he was being watched from above. Douglas considers other options as well, such as surveillance by communist groups. So Dick couldn't help but throw in a little Cold War paranoia on top of all of this. And on his way out of the office, Douglas sees a bar of gold on the ground. Now, gold is illegal for some reason. I don't know if it's, I don't think it's explained. I, I think, I guess gold would be illegal because the government would want to keep it out of circulation to protect it, to store it, right? To keep it in, in the coffers of the government, keep it in Fort Knox. But anyways, there's gold on the ground or maybe used for military purposes. He couldn't sell it, right? That's the problem. Even if you were able to grab this gold, he wouldn't be able to fence it. But he thinks I could take it and go abroad where this stuff's not illegal and then have a very comfortable retirement. He debates what to do and then the gold bar vanishes and he sees a giant face in the sky. The next day he discusses the situation with his colleagues, this time in his home. They realize that whoever is watching him must be living in the same dimension as humans because they seem to be able to interact, right? With the gold or with the eye, they're able to see. So they can't be like a separate dimension. And I don't know if you've done these thought experiments in your math classes. I remember doing them like, you know, how we're able to look at three-dimensional things on two dimensions, right? We're able to draw it, right? We can take a book, a three-dimensional book and draw it on two dimensions. And that's kind of how a book. So we're, we're kind of looking through dimensions when we do that, right? So we do this experiment. What would a four-dimensional thing look like if it was drawn, quote unquote, drawn in three dimensions, right? And there, you know, we can, we can sort of do that, but you know, basically the idea is we can't really experience other dimensions in the same way. Yeah, a lot of science fiction kind of plays with this. Flatland does it. There was a Futurama episode about people in a two-dimensional space. Anyway, so they, they, they basically say it must be the same the same dimension as humans. These things, because they, they interact and they can be, they're kind of visibly recognizable. Gene Henderson, the lecturer, brings up the possibility that Douglas' experiences have theological explanations. He may be seeing what the Greeks interpreted as gods, right? And th this is something Dick does a lot in his stories, and that's try to explain something like a historical phenomenon like a religion, or later on he's going to deal with the Sybil this way. You know, maybe there's a science fiction explanation for, for this kind of thing. Here it's like, well, maybe you're just seeing the gods. I mean, if, if this stuff happens, and it happened to, we can presume that it happened to people before, and then, you know, this accounts for the belief that there's Zeus is up on the mountain or something. 
another professor realizes that w- whatever wants Douglas must be after his technical and scientific expertise. So we're jump back to kind of Cold War paranoia, that the only reason Douglas would be valuable to some outside entity is because of his knowledge, his scientific knowledge. Of course, it, the, the silly thing about that is whoever you know, is up in space probably has better technological expertise than Douglas has. But nonetheless, he goes out um, and is walking around again. And this time he sees a beautiful blonde woman. The girl tries to drag him out into the open, but Douglas hesitates. Lightning, a lightning bolt strikes the ground near the girl and she disappears, much like the gold Ignat disappeared. So he gets into the car and starts driving towards Denver. He thinks he'll be safer in, in the valley. Now, during his drive, he becomes more paranoid as he realizes that all that of all the humanity, of all humans, he's the one who's most desired by these aliens. He debates if he should accept their temptation. Maybe he's going to be welcomed as a as a guest of honor. Maybe he's going to be he's the most desired person by these aliens. Maybe he'll become a powerful person. But on the other hand, maybe they'll also enslave him for his knowledge or his ability. But he can't get out of this idea that he's the center of the universe. So, you know, this is kind of how we felt in Time Out of Joint. This realization that your banal, useless, boring life is actually the center of everyone's gaze. So he's thinking this and then tacks fall from the sky and they puncture his tire. It's like the James Bond caltrops or something. Drop down, his, his car tires break. He gets out of the car and a giant net takes him up into the sky and then two creatures appear before him and they discuss their catch using psychic communication which he's able to understand he learns that he's just been caught to be eaten and he's dumped into a giant frying pan so basically everything that's happened to him has been simply a effort to capture him he he's, he wasn't the center of desire he wasn't the center of attention because of his knowledge he wasn't he was just the one juiciest fish that the aliens saw. Um, so, you know, I wonder if, you know, if a fish, when he's caught, he, does he think for a moment, wow, I must be really important. I'm the one who was, who was captured um, by these strange aliens. But that's kind of what happens to him. So, again, it's a very fun story. It doesn't really have that much meat to it thematically. It's just this kind of, it's almost like a joke. It's, it's a short story in the... It's a, it's a joke in the form of a short story. The man who thinks he's become the center of the universe is actually just the, the target. And maybe in the context of our current surveillance environment where the government is collecting all this big data and everyone and we have corporations essentially spying on our web history and buying information about us, you know, we, we might think we're important because we're watching, but we're not, right? We're just another victim of, of a broad system of, of big data. In this sense, he's just he's just a meal. In the story, he's just a meal for these aliens. And this is kind of a story that you you kind of understand why it took six years to be published. Because there doesn't seem to be much there. Um, yeah, it's not one of his best. But but let's try to to analyze this a little bit. It's it's about the surveillance state, right? Um, the key point here is that Douglas feels the paranoia of being watched. And this is a very common motif, right? We really see this most in the time out of joint, where Raggle Gum realizes he's the center of the world. And 
but he can't understand why, right? Because his life is so ridiculous. It's, it's actually preposterous. And other people, a lot of the early novel, part of that novel is about just how preposterous Gum's life really is. Like he does these stupid contests. He's flirting with the neighbor's wife. And th- that's his life, right? Living with his sister and brother-in-law. So when we're being watched, it's easy to assume that the reason we're being watched is because we're important. Now, in Gum's case, it was because he was really important. But... You know, in this case, it's it's not in this in fair game. It's not. It's just that he just happens to be the target of these aliens for whatever reason. Now, in the early days of the security state, when we go back even to the early modern period, when security states were first established, the government really only did watch important people. Right. Tax collectors only cared about you if you're rich. And I suppose that's still the case. Right. I'm sure millions of people every year fudge their taxes and, and cheat for a few bucks here and there. But of course, the IRS really probably only cares about you if if you steal a lot, right? And they focus their energies on getting on tax evaders among the rich. Now, they don't do a very good job, right? A lot of companies pay almost no taxes. But nevertheless, the you know, that they'd be after you or spies would search through your private documents if you were politically important, they not if you were just, you know, a peasant. But with advanced communication technology and computing, the state can afford to watch over all of us now and we can all be the center of the state's interest to some degree so yeah now you know local you know that's the whole point of the war the worry than the war on drugs is so tragic right because we have the state the state has the power now to actually repress people you know corner by corner you know and throw millions of people in jail they never would have had these resources a few hundred years ago so over the course of the 20th century, we all get put into the grid. State powers are much greater than they ever have been, right? We, we talk about living in the land of the free and the home of the brave and all that. But in fact, if anything, you know, peasants living in a monarchy in, in France may have been in a lot of ways freer in a day-to-day way than we have been. Thanks. Just, just because the state's that much more powerful. Yeah, it can do more for us as well. And I guess that's the price we pay for some of these government services. But at the same time, this, the capacity of the state to keep an eye on all of us is, is much, much greater. Whether we're important or not, in fact, surveillance is, is so cheap, it's automated, it's easy, and therefore there's no reason for the government not to watch us all. And, and here's where NSA you know, is, is sort of relevant to all of us. Now, once Douglas understands that he's being targeted by the creatures in the sky... He is specifically targeted with the compelling pieces of bait. Um, Now, he originally concludes that the reason he's wanted is because of his knowledge of physics. Now, this is logical, right? No one else was being watched. He was one of the better scientists on the planet, apparently. So imagine his surprise when he learns that he was chosen just because he was the plumpest or the, the best looking fish. But we can thus add another level to our paranoia that maybe we are being watched, but it's not because we're important, right? And there's an arrogance in this assumption that we're being watched because I'm important, right? Like this, this fantasy we might have that the NSA is following our, our Facebook feed because we're so important. You know, we're, we, we're, we're really radical or we have some, you know, we're a real challenge to the government, right? In fact, the NSA or whatever agency is watching our Facebook feed is doing it just because they can, right? And they have the resources. And it's actually probably just a computer tracking stuff anyway. So it's not like a person actually watching us. And 
just because we're a target of the state doesn't mean that we're of interest to them. I guess that's what we sort of get here now. And that's kind of Douglas's realization at the end of the story. There is a small bit of theology in the story. It's not much, and there's really not much to say here, but his colleague, Anthony Douglas's colleague, Gene Henderson, suggests that the faces Douglas sees in the sky are, are the explanation we may have been looking for for why the Greeks and the Hebrews believed in these gods and for all the mythology, all these stories, right? If, if you start seeing faces in the sky, of course you can then start to explain, you know, this as divine creatures, give them personalities, give them stories. Now, Dick has done something very similar to this in a lot of his early stories, the ones written around this time, which is his efforts to try to find uh, a real-life explanation for religious beliefs. For as much as Dick is thought of as a religious writer, a spiritual writer, someone interested in religious themes, a lot of his early stories were really about how can we explain religious phenomenon from a material foundation, right? So in Prominent Author, it's about how was the Bible written. In The Skull, it's how do you explain resurrection. And here it's just, you know, how do you explain the belief in gods? Maybe it was just aliens coming down and, and checking up on us. Now, this is not really a, really something we can take seriously as a cause of religious experiences because, you know, there hasn't been aliens visiting us this way. Um, but it's kind of like the ancient alien hypotheses, I suppose, which are out there. And people do make this claim that there was a relationship between ancient alien astronauts and religious beliefs. So it's not too bad, I guess. It's just so silly here that it's hard to take seriously. And I'm kind of struggling here to, to take any of this too seriously. Now, Dick was interested enough in theology that he could have written some really compelling explanations for religious experiences, but he never really follows through on that. You know, I guess not till the end of his career where he starts playing with Vallis, and, and that might be the closest he gets to really trying to have a serious and prolonged and extended explanation of, of religious experiences that, that are somewhat material. But... Um, you know, this is just, a, I just put this alongside prominent author and the skull, I think, for if you want to study it as a religious text. So that's really all I can say about Fair Game. It's it's really, it's, a, it's basically one you could probably skip if, if you weren't going to read these stories systematically. Um, but it's the first one in the volume three of the collected story, so you might be hoodwinked into reading it. It's the other stories in this volume are much, much better than, than Fair Game, I think. But it's good for a little bit of a laugh. And I think the core idea is this. The fact that we're being watched doesn't necessarily mean that we're important. Right. And but that from the perspective of the person being watched, we often feel like raggle gum. Like, why are we being why are we the center of attention by the state? So anyways, that does it for for Fair Game. Uh, thanks for listening. If you have your own comments about the story, please leave them below. If, okay, in my next episode, I'll be looking at the, actually the final publication of Dix in 1959, or at least the final one that I'm going to talk about. Um, I'm not quite sure on the exact order of when, like what month Time of Joint was published. But, um, but the final story published in 1959 was War Game. So anyways, that's what's coming up next. Uh, again, thanks for listening, and I'll be back next time with, with another story by Philip K. Dick. And possess my tired thoughts once on, that leaving dies 
that living dies, that living dies.